I still love magic and it's, you know, probably the most formative thing in my entire life. You know, it's the reason that I have the kind of jobs that I that, that I've had throughout my life. I feel like it was a mistake for wizards to like upend as much history and tradition as they had with the Pro Tour and kind of try to like reinvent the wheel essentially. Like the Magic Pro Tour was the longest ongoing competitive gaming circuit that I'm aware of ever. In sort of the the, the like esports-ish gaming world, Magic was kind of like the the like first real like pro gaming scene that like, you know, had like a level of legitimacy. And I feel like the desire to like become esports or whatever and shift over to being like a more broadcast focused product um, and you know rebrand things to mythic championships or whatever I feel like it was just was just an error people didn't care that much about watching the best players play people cared about watching the best players play but they cared more about the chance of playing against them or seeing their friends mm. play against them the the aspirational part of it there will be. Ellie's not happy about the Pro Tour, apparently. She's, she's, uh. Welcome to Humans of Magic. My guest this week is none other than Brian Kibler. Brian is a Magic Hall of Famer, pro gamer, game designer, and broadcaster. Needless to say, this is one of the biggest names I've had in the podcast, and you'll have to forgive me. The first half hour, I was just extremely nervous talking to Brian, and it certainly showed in recording. It gets a little bit better later on. Nerves aside, I had a great conversation with Brian, certainly a magic celebrity in every sense of the word. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the audio version of Humans of Magic. This project is a labor of love, and I do it on a part-time basis. I wanted to let you know about all the ways that you can support the project. Number one, tell a friend. If you like the content, please pass it on and let others know about the pod. I'm always looking for new listeners. Number two, subscribe to the Humans of Magic YouTube channel. The video version of the podcast is the best one because you can see my guests. You can see all their fun expressions, and it's awesome. Go to humansofmagic.com and find all my social links there, including YouTube. That's humansofmagic.com. Last but not least, I have a Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Totally optional, but your direct support goes a super long way. Patrons will have access to my exclusive Discord chat and will have the ability to suggest future guests. If you like the sound of that, head on over to patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Once again, thank you for being a fan and thanks for listening. Let's get to this week's episode. All right, Brian, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing well, you know, just coming off a uh, pretty long stream, but uh, you know, I love doing that, so still feeling pretty energetic. <laughs> I think I saw your tweet. You're doing some fun stuff on your Hearthstone stream, right? Like I you was, made some big I things was, happen. Yeah. You know, I I, you know, 
Much like when I was competing in Magic, I typically try to find, you know, different sort of ways to mess around and uh, try and find wins against popular decks while, you know, playing what it is that I want, so. I still find it super remarkable how, I think I saw your VOD, like, you streamed for seven hours today, and I know you said you don't look at concurrent viewer counts, but I was looking at it while you were live, and you had, like, 1,700 or 1,800 viewers towards the end, like... Mm -hmm. Is that is that just like every day in the life of Brian streaming now or what? Uh, no, that's actually a pretty good number for me these days. Um, you know, the viewership on Twitch is a weird thing um, because, you know, especially someone like me who primarily streams, you know, like a game or a couple of different games, a lot of sort of your viewership is going to go with sort of the ebbs and flows of the popularity of the game or game mode that you're playing. Um, you know, like a few years ago, I would like average like three or 4,000 viewers. Uh, but, you know, with sort of the, the, the decline in, you know, popularity of like just Hearthstone generally on Twitch, like pretty much everyone uh, streaming Constructed Hearthstone has seen like pretty similar, uh, you know, levels of drop off in viewership. Uh, but, you know, I still love to do it. And uh, today was a good day. So <laughs> there's definitely ebbs and flows with the game. So what what happened with Hearthstone to make it? Because you, you mentioned having 3,000 viewers a while mm -hmm. back. Like, what happened? The, the game itself or the formats you play? Or what, what was it? Or what is there's it? A, there's a number of factors. Um, and, you know, obviously none of these can really be super deterministic, like my knowledge of what the actual, you know, factors are. But my yeah. my theory is the viewership of specifically constructed Hearthstone on Twitch has you know, dropped for a, a few reasons. One, it's just an older game now. You know, it, it had huge... Uh, spikes in viewership early on where it was like this hot thing tons of people were into it because it was it was new and exciting and then kind of had more peaks when like really like popular thematic sets came out like knights of the frozen throne lots of people really into the lich king and stuff so you had another sort of bump there uh but over time you know as as people like aren't really playing it as much because they're moving on to other games whether you know it's other card games or like things like you know overwatch 2 or valorant both of which are pretty hot right now um or just, you know, the they've just moved on to watching other game modes of Hearthstone. Like, Hearthstone Battlegrounds has kind of cannibalized both, I think, viewership of Hearthstone Constructed, as well as a lot of the popular streamers of, like, you know, uh, other uh, Hearthstone game modes. So you have sort of this shift in, in viewership coming from a, a bunch of different directions. And I, I think also notably, their uh, esports program is on YouTube rather than Twitch now. And you can actually see, like, kind of a, a direct correlation in the overall Hearthstone constructed viewership since they made that shift. Uh, and, you know, with no, like, big, exciting, like, tentpole championship-type events, I think you have, like, fewer kind of casual viewers who tune in to kind of get the sense of things before those big events. Mm, that all adds up. That all that all matters, yeah, for sure. And uh, this might be, like, I might be starting off with a quite a controversial question here, but how firm or convicted are you in terms of staying on with Hearthstone? Because I know you've done, like, you branched off into other types of streams recently as well. Like, mm -hmm. is Hearthstone just, like, a mainstay for you because you've done it for a decade? Or how, how do you feel about that? So there, there's, there's a couple factors. One, um, the majority of my, at least, current viewership on both Twitch and on YouTube um, are interested in watching me play Hearthstone, right? Like, if I stream, say, Magic... I get fewer viewers than if I stream Hearthstone. If I upload magic videos to my YouTube channel, I get fewer viewers on those than if I'm uploading Hearthstone. Um, and 
you know, it's not like, you know, oh, I, like, I know that there are some people who are like, oh, I hate this game that I stream, but it's the thing that people want to watch me, me stream, so I keep streaming it. That's not the situation I'm in at all, right? I still very much enjoy the game. Um, and every now and then I'm like, yeah, I want to take some time off and play other stuff. And I do that when I, you know, when I like, really am feeling burnt out, whether it's a particular metagame I don't like or just there's something else I'm really excited about, I will sort of make uh, time to play other things, stream other things. Um, but that can have significant impacts on, you know, my, my future viewership, particularly on YouTube, um, because, you know, you, you sort of have like the recommendation algorithm that like, you know, compounds on itself when you go away from what your audience is typically wanting to, to, to see. And when you have a, like, a long period of that, you end up having like your viewership for the next one gets, you know, drops, which means your next one gets recommended fewer times, which means your next one gets drops even more and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I still very much enjoy playing, uh, playing and streaming, uh, Hearthstone. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't really feel like, like I said, I don't really think I'm stuck, but it's not like something that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to get away from it. Mm, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's, uh, the algorithm is definitely one part of it. Right. And it just speaks to like how, no matter how big your platform is, and I think you have quite a sizable platform that still is a consideration, right? It's, we're not talking about someone who, uh, you know, has a hundred viewers on Twitch. Like, like you have quite a lot of viewers and everything matters, right? I guess, I guess it's all related also to making a living and your brand and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, like, I still very much enjoy magic and doing, you know, occasional magic, uh, content playing magic. Um, but magic like isn't as successful, at least on Twitch compared to Hearthstone, I, I actually specifically enjoy streaming um, Hearthstone more than I enjoy streaming Magic most of the time. Uh, you know, particularly like even with, uh, you know, obviously before it was like Magic Online when I first started streaming, because I first started streaming Magic Online, you know, back in like 2011, when you know I did my first streams, it was Magic Online, right? There wasn't Hearthstone then. Um, and obviously Magic Online has, uh, you know, a lot of flaws when it comes to, to streaming. And that's a big part of the reason that they eventually made Magic Arena. But I still think that for me and my mentality approaching uh, games, I generally enjoy streaming Hearthstone more than I enjoy streaming Magic. In part because I still have some of the, like, competitive brain wiring from my days competing in Magic. Yeah. Um, that, like... You know, I, I don't want to just try and play some, like, weird deck to try and do wacky things, which I, I really enjoy doing in Hearthstone. Um, and I also think that the game itself doesn't lend itself as well to stuff like that, right? Mm. Like, some of my favorite decks in Hearthstone specifically try to do, like, very different things every single game because of stuff that, like, creates cards from outside the game and stuff. And obviously Magic tried to lean into that to some degree with Alchemy, but I think Alchemy is is mostly <laughs> awful. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, and it doesn't do it in like a satisfying way. It does just just does it in a really complicated and confusing way. Right. I got to do full disclosure here. Like, I'm not a Hearthstone player, but I I still remember like when Hearthstone came out. There was a reason why Hearthstone is and continues to be probably the best one of the best digital CCGs. Right. Like, it's just built for for digital. Right. Like, yeah. there's a there's a random number generator. Um, actually, two things you mentioned. Uh. I think you mentioned in another interview that when you play Magic, your primal instincts, I think I'm actually quoting your, your primal instincts kick in. And so you want to be more competitive be, just because of the, the game being Magic and maybe it like reawakens something 
about your competitive side, but also like you mentioned how like in game design, it's really good to have games that are like casual and fun and it's not entirely deterministic. And it, it sounds like I'm sort of, maybe I'm reading too much into your answer, but like Hearthstone is also hitting those, uh, uh checking those boxes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my relationship with magic for the vast majority of my life was I'm trying to be the best, right? Like I am trying to win. And, you know, like, regardless of the fact that I'm now, what, seven years removed from when I was last competing regularly, basically when I started streaming full time, you know, there's still that part of my brain that's like, yeah, this is what you tried to do from like age of 15 onward, right? So it's, it's difficult to turn off, at least when I'm playing the game. And like, I find the like, at least digitally, you know, with like the, what, what's available on like arena and such, like trying to build those wacky decks less compelling, like I said, than I do in, in something like Hearthstone. Um, I think part of that being the, the sort of, you know, competitive brainworms or whatever that, uh, yeah. I, I'm infested with since I was a child. Um, but I also think, you know, from the, the perspective of, as you mentioned, being designed specifically for digital, Hearthstone has a big advantage there. You know, in that, like, every card was, you know, was always designed for digital, right? Like, obviously, Magic is trying to do this with Alchemy, as I mentioned. Not a big fan. But, like, even outside of what they're trying to do with that, you still have to come from the baseline that every single card was designed to be a paper card. And, you know, like, the, the elements of the game that aren't necessarily designed digitally, like, even just, like, lands being in play, right? Like, lands in Magic take a bunch of, like, space in the board, Right? Obviously, like, in Arena, they, like, try and stack them in certain ways, but that can get confusing when they're stacked in certain ways. And, like, you know, you're like, oh, I didn't realize you had that creature land or whatever there. Just it, it adds to the complexity that a game like Hearthstone has a, a resource system that's divorced from actual cards, has more simplicity that, like, doesn't take up screen real estate, you know, and, and can just kind of do its own thing. There's also just the fact that the nature of the interaction system in Magic means that you're, like, you know, because even though there's like my turn and then your turn, like with instance and things like that and blocking, you always have to pay attention in your opponent's turn. And one of the things that makes like a game like Hearthstone so, uh, so great for streaming is that you kind of can take your opponent's turn off and just talk to the chat, right? Like you don't have to make decisions when it's not your turn. You can't make decisions when it's not your turn. There's no decisions to make. So it's almost the perfect streaming game. In the sense that, like, you can talk through what you're doing and take time to, like, talk to people, which doesn't necessarily detract from your ability to play the game, which if you're trying to win in Magic, it absolutely does, because there's things that you need to do at all points of every turn, at, you know, potentially. So having said all that, though, how do you feel about your recent forays into... EDH Commander? Because, like, if Magic has this thing of, like, activating your your competitive instincts uh how does it feel to actually play commander edh because at least when i'm watching as a spectator like your some of the videos you've been on it feels like you're able to shut that part of your your brain off right so how, how do you how do you feel about that yeah and and you know some of that is some of that is is like the way that i approach like commander broadly and and you know like how i build my decks in commander is specifically to like, not make my decks as powerful as I possibly could. Because, like, the, I, I've called commander deck building to be kind of like game design, right? And it's game design in the sense that rather than, you know, I'm trying to build a deck that 
is looking to win each of the games that I play, I'm trying to build a deck that creates an experience for everyone who's involved in the game, right? So the way that I build my commander decks is that I, I try to make them do like a wider variety of things. Kind of like I was talking about one of the things that is appealing to me about Hearthstone is that, you know, you, you have like this greater variance in gameplay because of random stuff. I'm not necessarily playing random things in my commander decks, but the fact that they're 100 card singleton decks means that they will play out more differently on a regular basis. And I have some sort of philosophical things that I, that I do during my deck building process to kind of try to emphasize that. Like none of the decks that I play in commander have basically any form of tutoring because I would rather draw more different cards and have my games be different than, you know, have like just a bunch of tutors in every deck. And I'm like, I'm going to go look for this. I'm going to go look for this. And the games just play out the same way. Right. Like I, I think that I want to build my decks to have a wider variety of gameplay experiences and then play the games to win the games. Right. Cause that part of my brain of like, you know, Hey, I'm trying to win is, is still there. Right. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I, like, for instance, when I was, uh, you know, guesting on uh, Olivia's show, uh, Elder Dragon Hijinks, there was one time where I was, like, doing some ridiculous thing. And I was just like, I'm going to do this as ridiculous thing as possible. I, I played, like, uh, what was it? It was Legion Loyalty, the all your creatures have myriad. And I just attacked with all my stuff. And then I was like, oh, wait, I guess this draws me a card for everyone. So I just deck myself. Because I'm not, like, <laughs> dialed in and trying to, you know, ensure that I'm doing everything totally optimally. But I'm still like, you know, my goal is still, hey, I'm going to do this powerful thing and try and win the game. It's just not in the, quite the same level. <laughs> it's more like the, the, the mentality I have, to, like, practicing for a tournament than playing in the tournament. In either case, I'm still trying to win, but there's just a level of focus that's different, right? So you're actually approaching Commander kind of like as a, almost like a designer. Like you're, mm -hmm. you're it's like, or you're creating constraints for yourself up front so that, without the tutors, without certain things in the deck, so that it doesn't actually get to a point where you become a hyper-focused, lean, mean, killing machine. Or at least that's how I interpret your answer. Yeah, I mean, like, I want my decks to do cool stuff, right? But I want them to do different cool stuff. And in many cases, I specifically build my decks in such a way that they, you know, have certain, like, limitations. Like, for instance, uh, I was actually inspired by someone who I played against uh, at the Command Fest in Orlando, to make a, uh, a Chulain deck, but it's a Chulain deck that has Karuga as the companion. So like Chulain, you know, it's, it's a super, super powerful commander, but specifically you want to play a bunch of cheap creatures to like keep triggering the Chulain's ability. But I'm like, well, what if I can't do that? Because all of my cards have to cost at least three. So the, and the deck can still do ridiculous things because Chulain is ridiculously powerful, but it's like, in my mind, more interesting to like, you know, make it with this, this sort of, uh, drawback, this limitation, so that, like, it's more of a challenge both in terms of deck building and in terms of gameplay. And I still play the game, play the deck to, like, try and do these ridiculous things and win, but it's just harder because I presented myself with, like, you know, a, an additional hurdle in deck building. Are you playing Commander mostly for entertainment, to challenge yourself, or, is, or something else? So the biggest thing that draws me to Commander is it's a way that I can play Magic with anyone, right? Like, as someone who has played Magic competitively for most of my life, it isn't fun for me to play Magic with most people if I'm just playing, like, Constructed or I'm playing Draft or whatever. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like a challenge. 
I mean, not, not to sound like, a, a, you know, like an arrogant jerk or something, but like for me to like show up to the local F and M is not something that's really like ever been something I'm super interested in doing. Right. Like, cause it's just not that interesting. It's not that fun because like, you know, we're just playing on very different levels and with commander, like I can just play a game with anyone. Right. And it can still be fun. It can still be something that like, you know, me and, you know, someone who literally just started playing magic a month ago and, you know, like whatever range of skill levels you can have can still all like sit down and have a good time. Cause it's not just like, Hey, my goal is to, to beat you, to show that I'm better than you. That's not the point, right? The point of commander, at least in my mind, you know, it's, it's a social experience. It's, it's an opportunity to get together with friends and to enjoy this experience that you, you are both passionate about. And like I said, I still try and win the games that I play. Right. But it's a very different kind of thing than like, Hey, I have my standard deck that I built in tune to try and, you know, try and win. And, you know, you have yours and it's just like, we're going head to head, you know, like it, it is, it, it is a much more, uh, a much more sort of forgiving experience for like players of lower skill level or low experience level, because it's not just like one V one, the number of games I play were like, I'm basically arch enemy, right? People gang up on me because you know, <laughs> either because of my deck or because I'm just me or whatever. Yeah. And those games are really satisfying to win too, right? Like, so it's 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 just a matter of like giving me a way to enjoy magic in a context that I haven't been able to since I was like thirteen, right? Like since I was literally a kid playing with my friends in like middle school, because like after the point that I started playing competitively, it wasn't fun to play with my friends from middle school or my friends from home or whatever for the most part, right? Like, sure, I'd do like cube drafts or like the occasional like you know draft at home or whatever, but it's just like. It's, it's a very, very different sort of experience. And what I love mo most of all about Magic is, like, the deck building and, like, the, the, you know, challenge of, like, figuring stuff out. And I love that in Commander too, right? And it's a different, but it's a different kind of figuring something out. It's, it's a matter of, hey, I want to make a deck that does a thing that creates this experience for people, including myself, of course. Um, and oftentimes giving myself, like, these restrictions and things. Um, and, and that's still like this, this compelling challenge for myself, but now one that I can also like include, you know, a wide range of other people in rather than like, you know, aiming to just take it to be like absolutely cutthroat at the highest level of competition. Is it the multiplayer aspect of commander that allows that sort of fun to, to happen or I, I think there's two elements to it. One is, one is the fact that it's multiplayer. Right. The fact that it is multiplayer means that there's there's like kind of fundamental fail safes of like, you know, if a player is like clearly getting ahead, then it's like, hey, you just kind of team up and try and stop that player from winning the game. Um, and there's also just the, the fact that it isn't fundamentally like a competitive thing in the same way. Right. Obviously, there are people who do play like CEDH. And, you know, I, I, I think that there is a lot to be said for that, because one of the biggest challenges in Commander, of course, is people kind of being on the same wavelength as far as the kind of game they're looking to have. And one of the things that I think that, that is, is great about CEDH is like what, you know, the, the level is, you know, whatever you can do that's legal in the game, right? Whereas, you know, a lot of times you sit down at a table with someone and you're like, oh, this is my deck. It's power level, whatever, which is all mostly nonsense. And it's like someone like sits down and like, you know, infinite combo kills the table and like turn four. It's like, great. We all had a wonderful time, you know? But when you're playing CEDH, you know, that's what you're in for. So, you know, I, but I, you know, I, th I think that, that like the fact that 
because it is so like because of the multiplayer element and because like as long as you have people who are generally kind of on the same wavelength as far as sort of the experience looking to have you know it's it's not nearly as cutthroat it's not nearly as like you know punishing to someone who has a weaker deck or is less experienced or whatever they can still feel like they're participating in the game and get to do cool stuff that they're doing even if they lose right it's it's more about the experience than about winning and whereas obviously competing in tournaments it's like yeah my goal is to win i'm curious how how long you've been exposed to commander edh because uh, like looking into the history of edh like it was actually started a very long time ago mm -hmm. with sheldon venery and people popularizing it um is that something you ever experienced while you were like in the pro tours or like back in the day even though you were mostly a competitive player or is it a more recent phenomenon for you so I don't, know if, I don't know if the dogs are super loud right now, but... I can hear them, but I think it adds to the atmosphere. Just, <laughs> as long as they're okay, do you need to take care of them? Oh, they're or, fine. Uh, they're just, they're just okay. barking a lot. They're just, cr just cr literally crying for attention <laughs> or what? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I was exposed to, you know, EDH, Commander, whatever, like way back when. Um, and it was funny because when I, when I first went to go like, actually start building a Commander deck... I had like a stack of cards that I had pulled years ago. They're like, oh, I'm gonna build, I'm gonna build a, an EDH deck. I never did. I never got around to it. And part of it was just like I couldn't decide like the sort of thing I wanted to play. And like then it was then it was just like hard to to really bring myself to like make something that wasn't just trying to be the most powerful thing possible. And then that sounded boring. It sounded like it was you know kind of against the spirit of what everyone was doing anyway. So I just I just stopped. Right. Um, but I, I like literally like ten plus years ago, I had like the stack of cards that that was like various foil versions of like you know stuff that seemed powerful then, whatever, and or seemed cool. It, you know, the deck that I was I was like putting together like a progenitus deck, just because I wanted to play all the ridiculous, powerful, big things in every color. And this was obviously before there were like a lot of the modern type commander things there were, because there weren't commander products yet. Um, but like there was, you know, like I couldn't really bring, like I said, bring myself to actually put something together because it just didn't seem that interesting to me compared to like actually just building decks for tournaments while I was still competing. So what changed? The funny thing is the first time I ever played commander, I got a, a text message from Josh Lee Kwai, you know, from command zone game nights. That was just, Hey, do you want to come play magic with post Malone? And I was like, you know what? Sure. That sounds fun. And, you know, I ended up going, you know, out to this, this house in like the Hollywood Hills that Posty was renting and, you know, playing Commander with a bunch of people. Like I didn't have my own decks. I borrowed decks. The very first game of Commander that I played was um, uh, with Jacob Hawk from Cobra Kai and Sholo, uh, who plays Miguel in Cobra Kai and their buddy who, whose name I, I, I constantly forget, but, <laughs> but I borrowed one of Jacob's decks. And it was like an Atla Polani deck. Um, and I ended up like um, making, using Hate Mirage to make a token copy of an Agent of Treachery and then repeatedly populating it. And I was just like, oh, this is great. <laughs> just like taking everyone's things. And I'm like, oh boy, this, now this is awesome. <laughs> and yeah, that was, uh, you know, I, I played like one more game that night with Posty and some other folks. And, uh, you know, was basically hooked at that point. And I think it was a big part of it was it was far enough away from me having, you know, been competitive that like those sort of things, even though I was like, yeah, I'm just looking to do this really gross thing of literally stealing everyone's stuff. Um, 
it was still the sort of thing where it was like, oh, okay, you know, just this cool social environment, hanging out with these people and playing magic. This can actually be fun for me again. What what was it actually like though to play with the Cobra Kai folks and with Post Malone in the moment? Uh, it was it was fun, you know, and and it was one of the funny things was you know, like they were excited to meet me, which was this kind of weird weird surreal thing. Cause like, wow, you're yeah, in the Hall kind of Fame, and I'm yeah. just like, yes, and you're on TV and have like you know various uh, various like you know platinum records or whatever. Uh, but no, it was it was it was a lot of fun, and you know it was uh, it was just like a really chill environment. Like they're all super super low key, like really fun people. Um, you know, tons of people have heard all about like you know what a, a like huge Magic fan that Posty is at this point. But like not only that, he's just like an unbelievably gracious person. You know, like he. It, you know, like is super excited to play magic and also just like, just a super, super nice guy. You know, like he like, w you know, I saw him like give out his phone number to like a half dozen people who were hanging out that night. And just like, you know, he was just like happy to take pictures with people, happy to just like chill and whatever. And, you know, similarly with the, the Cobra Kai guys with, uh, you know, uh, Jacob and Sholo, like they were, were both just like, super excited to get a chance to hang out with all these people and play magic and everything. And it's funny because like, I think people have these ideas of what like the lives of celebrities are like. And, and frankly, I've had people, you know, have that same kind of mentality about me about mm -hmm. like, you know, Oh, it's, it's so strange that you're just like a normal person down to earth. It's like, <laughs> I'm just a dude who plays games on the internet. Right. And it's, it was just an awesome experience to have an opportunity to hang out with people you know, who are all just really excited to play games and, like, clearly very, very into Magic. People are competitive in their respective fields, right? Like, mm -hmm. they want to be the best at music or acting or whatever it is. Like, does that ever get activated when they play Magic? Or are they able to, like, completely turn it off? Oh, like, I... In Commander, like, Posty, for instance, is, like, super competitive. Like, Posty and, like, Cassius Marsh are both just yeah. like hyper competitive like playing i mean they're they're like they're gen they're like cool and like chill too but like yeah. i think Cassius in particular is someone who i can who kind of like, feel that like they're kind of joking you know, but but yeah, you know they're, they're trying to win from right? like like football right which is like an yeah. ultra ultra competitive like you've got to be like really really into it to be able to like have a possible chance of being as successful you know in that field as as he has been you know like you got to be ultra competitive right so, like, playing, you know, and, and, and harnessing your competitive drive in another field like Magic, you know, you're, you're going to have this, I imagine, the same kind of, like, feelings kind of, like, boil up that give you that drive in a, a you know, much more physical and, and different kind of environment. But, like, you know, like, he, like I, I played a game with him where, like, someone, like, you know, like, killed his stuff or, like, popped off or whatever. And he just, like, got up and walked away. And it's not like, you know, it's, like, a bad thing. But it's like him recognizing, yeah, like I'm gonna be mad if I, you know, if like yeah, you know, I, I just sit here and stew in this, right? right. And it's frankly, if anything, I think that, like, that that having that kind of self awareness of like your own tendencies in that kind of environment uh, is is a really uh, really commendable thing. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, I also want to ask, like, because you're in LA, right? Like, do you just run into and because of your because of who you are that sounds kind of lofty but because of who you are like do you just run into celebrities and musicians and actors just all the time like if you're just like walking around do you just like no. find somebody or 
No, I mean, frankly, like the 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 most the most I run into like you know various celebrities is going to play Magic at these sort of events that I'm talking about, right? Like, yeah, you know, uh, like I've gone over to like you know Posty's place a couple times to play. Um, like I've played with like you know Cassius and a bunch of stuff and everything. Uh, I, I've in, like invited uh, Jacob at least uh, over to play at my place for the Commander Nights that we host here, but he's never made it. So he keeps telling me he will, and uh, eventually, yeah. eventually he's gonna he's gonna have to actually live up to his word there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you the kind of person that gets starstruck? Like if you if you run into somebody, just. No, it doesn't matter who they are. It could be like Robert De Niro. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've, I've just never really been someone who like, is that, I don't know that into celebrities, right? Like I, I've never like met anyone who I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm like too scared to like, you know, like walk up to them or something. I mean, I do have like, you know, whatever level of, of just like human social anxiety to some extent, but I'm not like, you know, Oh, I'm starstruck. I can't possibly like, you know, speak to this person kind of thing. Okay. So you're you're not like me before this interview where I was just like, <laughs> well, like the, the wall is slowly dissolving. Like I, I'm getting a little better now. Like I'm feeling like okay, Brian's actually a normal person. He's not actually a, a cyborg like out to get me. So I uh, jokes aside, like I think it was like over a decade ago, you were actually the first magic personality that I knew of. I'm not saying that I met you a decade ago, but mm-hmm. I was like back in the day I still lived in Canada, and I still remember like going to my magic LGS. And I, I hope this is not going to embarrass you. Like the very first thing I ever saw that was like, had a magic person personality on it was like that play mat of yours. Like someone <laughs> had the play mat in the LGS where you oh, were like, you, you know, the, you know, the iconic yeah. Kibler play mat. And I think it was autographed. Is it, is it like printed autograph or did you hand autograph every well, one of those? Anyone that's anyone that signed was just hand signed by me. Yeah. And Unless I remember someone like, made like a stamp of my autograph or something and, and counterfeited them. I don't know, but. And I remember it was a it was a dude. It was a guy that had your playmat, and I was just like, "This guy on the playmat must be so famous that somebody <laughs> wants to get a Brian Kibler." I mean, I didn't. I found out later it was Brian Kibler because I don't think it had your name on it, but mm-hmm. it had your 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 likeness. And I just asked the guy, like, "Who is that? Like, why do you have this playmat of a of like a pinup, like <laughs> you know, with lounging his... on like a couch?" <laughs> yeah, like like is that is that still available that playmat? Is it is it no, still like a no, hot seller? They, they've been they've been like sold out out of stock or whatever for for many years. I've, oh jeez, I thought about making a new version, you know, with the the new look. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I think I need to spend more time in the gym and do like a shirtless one or something, you know, to really <laughs> really up the ante for the next edition. Wasn't there a magic uh, centerfold? calendar i there, think it was, was like there was calendar, one that yeah. chapin or yeah. a few Ch- people so did chapin like organized a bunch of like magic pro, you know pros and personalities and such to do like a charity swimsuit calendar this was okay. like 2020 um and yeah i i'm in that too oh geez okay so I have to get the playmat, which is out of stock now maybe i can find it on ebay right <laughs> um and also I this calendar find I, gotta... like, I have I have bins of playmats here, and I found actually a copy of that playmat, and then lost it somewhere in my house again. I was yeah. going to like, because uh, when uh, Olivia did the the uh, fundraiser that she did for the, the National Abortion Fund, uh, I was going to add that as a potential prize to her fundraiser. Um, uh. But then I then I found it and then lost it again somewhere, and I didn't want to commit to having that be a prize and then not be able to actually deliver it. So 
It's got to be somewhere in my office here, which is kind of amazing. Okay. You can what, maybe your... tell by looking like that way as there's just boxes of stuff. No, it, it looks – the wall looks really great, but I the can just imagine now – The camera like... looks nice. The other stuff. Okay. <laughs> so it's like just right outside the camera is just like stacks and stacks of magic cards Basically. or whatever it is? It's, okay. it's mostly like – well, there's, there's an entire box of playmats. There's multiple like cases of sparkling water. There's like – there's just a sword, like an actual sword. There's <laughs> – there's Boffer LARP swords over here, but there's just an actual okay. sword over there, too. <laughs> actual sword? Like, how did you get the actual sword? Like, is it for self-defense or it's what? It's just like a, you know, from some person who made a sword online. Got a sword. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, so how many, how many, how many Brian Kibler um, playmats are there in your house then? Like, are there like hundreds or what? Um, no, no, I think there's, I, I only know of like the one, there's another one that I had that, that, uh, got back at like PAX in like 2013, 14, something like that. Maybe even earlier that I had like the whole, like, uh, Dignitas League of Legends team sign back mm. when it was like Scara, uh, Cutie Pie, Crumbs, Kiwi Kid. And God, I'm I'm blanking on who the other player was. Uh, anyway, I have one. I That's have a one major that collector's item on. right there. But then I ha I yeah. had like a pristine one, uh, like a uh, you know an unsigned, unblemished one as well. And I don't know where that yeah. goes to. So. Okay, so long weird tangent by me aside. <laughs> like the reason why I mentioned this playmat is because like you do have a certain level of celebrity or magic celebrity or just brian kibler celebrity like what's the weirdest thing that someone has ever come up to you and said or asked you like what's the weirdest interaction you've had with i a i EMK have been fan? asked to sign someone's prosthetic leg okay um i've been asked to sign a bag of dog food it was kibbles and bits so okay. um on brand i i had someone tell me that they were, they had someone pretending to be me that they, like someone was like, like this, this girl that my friend, a friend of mine knew had some guy who was like hitting on her and pretending to be me. And I was like, she was like, I know this person. <laughs> You're, you, are you, not you mean like, you mean like they used your profile photo and like, no, Tinder like in person, they like said they were, wow. Me. And it's like, wow. this, this just seems like the sort of thing that's very easy to Hell is not true. Wait, wait, you're saying this guy impersonating you actually knows you? No, the, 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 it was a friend of mine was talking to this girl who we had both met like at a convention and she was at some other convention or something. And some guy was hitting on her pretending to be me. How does, how does that even work? I don't like, know. Like I don't if if she work. accepts, I don't know how you would think overtures, it, like it definitely did not work. Like the, the thing about that is. If if someone is, you know, going to possibly be impressed by someone pretending to be a person, they'd have to know who that person is and probably what they look like. Right? Like yeah. I I just don't understand. But that happened. That that is actually incredible. Like this this <laughs> like this is like a Jerry Springer episode. Like like, hey babe, I'm not actually Brian Kibler. Like I'm actually like and my greatest gift is for impersonating people. Yeah. That's <laughs> That that is that is incredible. Um, what is the what is the um, what is the question that you've been asked the most in interviews or publicly? Hmm. Like what what question are you absolutely tired of answering? 
there's nothing that like really you know I would say that I'm really like tired of answering. I mean, people ask like stuff like what's your favorite magic card really often, but like you know it's not like I'm like you know oh sick of sick of saying Knight of the Reliquary because Knight of the Reliquary is awesome and I will never right. stop extolling the virtues of Knight of the Reliquary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so there is so your favorite magic card is is like the most often asked question. Probably, I mean. Uh, yeah, I, I, the most like like favorite favorite magic card, favorite Hearthstone card, favorite deck. Those sort of things are are like very very common questions. Got it. Okay, I want to go back to. Uh, not go back, but you show me the sword, right? So I think it's fair game. Like, how did you, what what's with LARPing? Like, how long have you been doing live action role playing? And uh-huh. like, give, give give me the give me the primer on what what that's. About. Okay, so I actually first did live action role playing before I ever played Magic. I played my first live action role playing event when I was 12. I lied about my age. I turned 13 the next week. You had to be 13 to play. I told them I was 13. Uh, like I just, I just put my, my birthday down as the year before or whatever. Um, but so live action role playing, like I played a, you know, in a game back in New England when, uh, you know, I was, I was like, that's where I grew up. Um, and I played that same game through like another chapter they had in Atlanta where I went to college for like 10 years. Um, and then I moved out to California and basically, you know, didn't, didn't get involved in any kind of LARP stuff out here until like two years ago. But I got back into it uh, through this, this uh, game that, you know, had, has been running for like 10 years, uh, which amusingly, I had met someone who played basically back when they started when I was on an episode of Rob Deerdick's Fantasy Factory, they did like a LARP episode. Um, and this was in like 2011. And they, the reason they did the LARP episode of Rob Deerdick's Fantasy Factory was because like Rob Deerdick's like skateboard company was licensing the skateboard game that my old game company made. And they were like, well, we want to do a game episode, but like a board game episode would be boring. So we want to do a LARP episode. And... I ended up being like going and, and being in that and being like the king who the, the like you know Rob Deerdick and his like party had to you know find at the end of their whole adventure and I gave them a flash drive that had the the you know the design of the game or whatever on it. It was it was this really goofy thing. But yeah, I met someone who who was involved in the LARP that I now play like ten years ago and she was like, You should come try this game and I'm like, Ah, nah, it's I live in San Diego, this is all the way up in LA, I'm gonna pass. Yeah, ten years later I play the game. Okay. So many things to unpack here. There's a lot. Uh, There's a lot. Gonna... I shared a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, you have to explain for a complete ignoramus or ignorant sure. person like me, like, what does one do in LARP? Like, are you trying to, is there an actual, like, game engine or, like, or like rules of engagement? Like, what's the objective? Or is it different depending on the session? Or yeah. So, so LARP is just live action role playing, right? And... Uh, there are diff- there are a variety of different kinds of like LARPs, right? There there are, you know, what, what you people call parlor LARPs, where you basically like, you know, you're you have like a, there's a character in a story, and you're more or less doing like a live action like play, but but you're not like fighting with like weapons or anything like that. It's like you know they have like maybe dice or like rock paper scissors or whatever that like resolve that kind of conflict. Um, the games that I have played have are, are, are buffer LARPs that you use foam swords and you actually like hit people, you know, in, in, in foam sword combat. And. Oh uh, shit. That's intense. You'll have like, (laughs) 
you know, you'll have like a character and your character has abilities and you can use your abilities. Maybe they're combat related, maybe they're not. Um, the game that I play now has, you know, uh, a lot of like, one of the things I think is, is really compelling about it is they have lots of ways for people who don't want to just basically play like a hack and slash dungeon crawl style character who's just like all about fighting or magic or whatever. There's lots of like crafting stuff and like political stuff and all of this other sorts of ways that you can participate in and influence the world, you know, especially if you're just like not a particularly physically apt person, right? You can still feel like you can you can be a part of this world and enjoy it um, and not necessarily it be all about like, you know, fighting all the time. Um, that said... I like to fight a lot. <laughs> I'm very good at LARP buffer combat. <laughs> okay. And, you like uh, swinging the swords, getting physical. Yeah. Yes. So this okay. actually, let me show you something. This is actually a printout. Well, not a printout. It's like a, this is from the, the, the newsletter of the game. That's me. That's my character. When I won the fighting tournament thing in the game that I play. You are Kartan. <laughs> The F FP champion. Yes, yeah, so you, you there, there's clearly me as a dragon because my character is a dragon. Ah, okay, <laughs> okay. How did you, how did you come up with your character? Like, what's the inspiration there? Um. So the funny thing is, I literally was just like, well, the like the the rule book for the game that I play is like quite extensive, and I you know was like, I want to play. I know from my you know time playing another LARP that I really like the combat aspect of it. And I was like, I basically just want an excuse to, you know, make a character that just, like, wants to fight. I found out you could be a dragon in the game. I'm like, well, I'm obviously going to be a dragon. That's my thing. So I was like, well, I'm going to be a dragon, and I'm going to be, like, a gladiator. You know, someone who's, like, enslaved as a gladiator so that, like, I have an excuse to have literally no other abilities than combat. And that was the whole of my original character concept. Okay. <laughs> just the two-sentence uh, character bio. It's like... Basically, yeah. Like, okay. So Kartan is like, is, is, uh, is he a berserker? Is that, is that what it is? Or Pretty like much, dragon? yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so there's no, there's no dialogue. Like when you, oh, when no, there you absolutely in is. your yeah, camp, no, there's like, okay. it's, it's basically an interactive, like interactive play, you know, but like, there's not like, you don't have like lines, it's like an interactive improv story that you're interacting with. And, you know, you like, maybe you run into, like you spend a lot of your time just interacting with other players. Right. And then, right. you know, maybe there's like, monsters that you run into that you need to fight. You know, there's like an ongoing storyline through like both within like an individual event, which is like a weekend long. Right. And also between events, there's like ongoing stuff that, you know, like your character or like, you know, people in general may be trying to do. Mm -hmm. Is there like a, a dungeon master or, or a referee? Like so are there, there campaigns? There I'm are... trying to figure out the similarities to D&D sure. perhaps. The, yeah. there, there are like people who, who run the game, their staff who, who like, you know, like create the stories who like adjudicate things if there's disagreements um i mean the vast majority of, of everything that happens in the game is very much in the honor system you know like if yeah you, you get hit with a weapon you like when you swing your weapons you like say what damage your weapon does most if you don't say anything it does one damage if you say something else that's what it does um but like you know it's, it's if you wanted to try and cheat it's very very easy to cheat it's just stupid mm -hmm. to cheat because mm -hmm. it's just not fun so yeah but having said that, are there cheaters in the LARP oh, community? Like, yeah, no, there definitely are. Oh, really? That's like, just dishonorable people or something? Yeah, I mean, like, it, it, like in anything, you know, people people will, you know, do what they can to, like, I don't know, try and gain advantages or, like, you know, they feel just feel that the rules don't apply to them. I mean, obviously seen much of that in competitive gaming and other, other aspects. Not that this is a competitive thing, uh, but yeah. 
I'm just wondering, like, how do your competitive juices kick in or not kick in when you're LARPing? Sure. Because right? you're trying to kill the other person, right? Even though mm -hmm. it's make-believe. So for me, there's a lot of, of various aspects of, like, live-action role-playing that I enjoy. There's, you know, the, like, the performance aspect of it. I mean, obviously, I spend most of every day of my life on camera. And, you know, I, I obviously like the performance element of a lot of that. Um, there's also, like, kind of the game element, like, the game system element, right, of, like, here are the rules of this game. What are you going to do, you know, to make a character or to like, you know, what sort of skills or abilities or items you want to get? All of that, like, has those juices flowing. And then there's the physicality of it. You know, like I, I like I said, I, I played another LARP for like 10 years and like I really, really enjoy and I'm very good at like the actual combat part, part of it. And like that's a lot of where the, the sort of competitive element is, is like I want to be the best at that. And, you know, like there's the the sort of athleticism physicality of like the actual you know I don't know art of buffer combat or whatever um, and you know that's that's where that sort of feeds into the competitiveness and it's not like you know oh I'm I'm like you know trying to win it's just that I want you know I want to be as good as I can at this. Got it. Are there uh, this buffer combat? Are there places like gyms where you could train, like, uh, or do you just do it at home? So there, the uh, the game that I play, there's a group of people who who you know do like unofficial um, like fighting practice things at like a park um, every Saturday, and I, that's what like literally every Saturday morning. That's what I do because I love it so much. Oh, word. Okay. Okay. That's, <laughs> like I don't uh, go up Friday nights basically because I got to You got to wake up on Saturday. At the, at the park for my, my buffer combat. <laughs> that, that's incredible. That's incredible. Like, so what, what's the kind of demographic of people who play LARP in your area? Is it like. I mean, it's, there, it's is... really, really broad, right? Like, you have everything from, you know, like teenagers to like people in their like 50s or 60s. I mean, it's, it's also Los Angeles, right? So you have a lot of people who are in, or at least adjacent to the entertainment industry. There are people who like do prop fabrication for the game who are professional prop fabricators in Hollywood or like do costuming or makeup, you know, who that is the industry that they work in and they are very good at what they do. You know, so there's, there's some pretty incredible stuff that, uh, you know, is involved in this game sort of visually and, and storytelling wise. It's a lot of super talented people. Do you have like any particularly memorable LARP moments, like, um, or too many to count? Maybe. I mean, there's there's a lot, right? Like, a, a lot of it's also like sort of things that like don't translate well to stories to people who don't have the context, right? Okay. Because <laughs> it's like but... they 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 aren't necessarily like you know the sort of things like obviously you know winning like the the fighting tournament things is is fun, but like without the the context of like well what does that even matter, <laughs> you know? Like, for instance, like, that one, that, like, uh, cutout or whatever is from when I won, like, uh, this fighting tournament where they were, like, they did, like, brackets based on, like, how many games you had played as your character. Um, and I had only played three games and ended up winning the entire thing over, like, people who'd, won, who'd played, like, eight or nine or ten games just because Brian is very good at this. Not that my character was particularly necessarily a powerful character. Although now it's both, and I'm just going to beat everyone, so. <laughs> what's also, the Ellie, Ellie like, have decided to grace us with her presence yeah. this, Ellie you said this is Elspeth aka Elspeth. Ellie okay how long have you had Ellie for uh, we've had Ellie and her brother Oko for two months now okay okay are they um, are they are they 
I mean, other than making lots of noise, like are they are they just like are they good to have around? Like oh, are like no, I I I love I love them. They are they are wonderful. Ellie, Ellie yeah. is Ellie is the the louder of the two. She is the the guardian. That's thus Elspeth. You know, so she was the one that was uh, that was barking. You, usually, when, when there's barking around here, it's it's Ellie. Yeah. Okay. Oko's okay. the 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 himbo who just wants pets from everyone. He just lays around with his belly out, much like Oko, and uh, yeah, you know, just wants attention. She's she's the one who's always on guard, always alert. How long have you been a dog person for? Um, I've I've loved animals like my whole life. Um. There's actually like a long period where, you know, I, I like wanted to, you know, like get a dog when I was like either like right out of college or whatever, but just didn't didn't like make sense because I was traveling so much for magic. But, you know, since that's not really a thing that is, you know, part of my life anymore, uh, at least in the same way, it's not like, you know, I'm mm -hmm. traveling every weekend for a tournament like I was back in like, you know, 2012 or whatever. Um, you know, it's it's just nice to have the little fellows around. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I just recently became a pet uh, owner. I, I'm more on the cat side, but mm -hmm. I've, I've never had any pets my whole life. I thought it was just too much work. And then I think it was like two years ago, my wife just said, let's get, we're going to get a cat. And then now I'm just madly in love with, I think our cats are like scratching the door. The good thing is that they don't bark. So it's easier for recordings, but um, I, I just can't imagine like life without yeah. cats now. Like I've become... Like I, I go to business school part time, and basically my classmates now know me as like James the Catman because like <laughs> whenever there's a call, like a Zoom call or something, there's a, my cats are always like. Today they are not, but they're usually crawling around and like trying to trying to draw attention. I I feel like they're like little dogs. I think maybe it's because the way we raised them, like we really pampered them, so it's like mm -hmm. they're really starving for attention, which is not the stereotypical cat. But but anyways, that's a that's a big tangent. <laughs> I know you're more more of a dog person, right? Less of a cat person. I, so I actually, when I grew up, like my brother wanted to get a dog and I think like kind of as a contrarian, I was like, well, I want to get a cat, you know, kind of how, how sibling relationships can be. And then, you know, we got a dog and a cat and I liked the dog more. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just stuck with the dog. Uh, the, the I, I dog, learned, uh, I learned that, that I liked dogs better, but. In light of everything you told me today, like, for example, uh, you know, EDH commander and things like that, like, how would you describe your current relationship? with magic. I mean, I, I still love magic. Um, and you know, I want to see magic and, and also competitive magic succeed. Um, I am not interested in having the kind of relationship that I had with magic, you know, 10 years ago where it was my life, you know? Um, but like when the pro tours, you know, come back, um, next year or whatever is, is my understanding is they're going to you know start doing those. You know, because I'm in the Hall of Fame, I'm invited to one of them a year. So I'm 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 very likely going to compete in you know the event, like at least one event a year that I'm that I'm automatically qualified for. And I'll I'll you know I won't be like treating it like a job like I did again ten years ago or whatever. But I'm I'm going to try and win. Um, but yeah, I mean I like I I really really love magic, and it's you know probably the most formative thing in my entire life. You know, it's the reason that I have the kind of jobs that I, that, that I've had throughout my life. Um, and you know, it, it's obviously changed a lot over the years, but you know, I, I, I still, uh, I'm still happily involved in it, at least just in a different way. How do you feel about the new pro tour system? I don't really know that much about it at this point. <laughs> you know, they, that, they have that, really, that's they a common answer. Really, like 
given us tons of information, just like there, there, there will be. Is that Elspeth again? Ellie's not happy about the Pro Tour, apparently. She's, she's, uh... she, she's <laughs> voicing dissent right there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but, but no, I mean, like, the, there isn't, like, I feel like it was a mistake for Wizards to, like, upend as much history and tradition as they had with the Pro Tour and kind of try to, like, reinvent the wheel, essentially. Like, the Magic Pro Tour was the longest ongoing competitive gaming circuit that I'm aware of ever, you know? Like, you know, with the exception of, like, I don't know, probably like chess or whatever, you know? But, like, in, in sort of the, the, the like, esports-ish gaming world, you know, mm-hmm. like, Magic was kind of, like, the, the like, first real, like, pro gaming scene that, like, you know, had, like, a level of legitimacy. And I feel like, you know, the the desire to, like, you know, become esports or whatever and shift over to being, like, a more broadcast-focused product um, and, you know, rebrand things to Mythic Championships or whatever, I feel like was just was just an error. Um, because you know, I feel like if you wanted to do something like the, the Pro League on top of the Pro Tour you know, have like this additional level of competition or something, that's one thing, right? But but completely like doing away with, you know, as many years of, of like tradition and as many years of history as you had, I think, you know, just ended up really undermining like the legitimacy that a lot of people viewed the competitive circuit to have. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, it was, you know, great for the people who were able to take advantage of, you know, the just sheer amount of money they threw at stuff like MPL over the time they did. Um, but I think, you know, it clearly missed the mark on what people cared about as far as like what competitive magic is. Cause I think that what people care about are, you know, the sense of legitimacy, the sense that like, Hey, I'm doing something that is part of this bigger system that matters. It has like this, this historical precedent. It has, you know, this like rich history, um, and you know, even if it wasn't like something that was, you know, you're going to get, become like rich and famous off of, it was something that like you could at least justify the amount of time and money that you spent, like, you know, practicing and preparing for these sort of events. Um, and you know, I was certainly a, a very vocal person about how that latter part at least wasn't true as they kept sort of expanding and doing more and more grand prix and, and having like, you know, players feel the need to, to travel to like all of these in order to like stay competitive in like the pro player and, and, and uh, uh, world championship races and things. And ultimately like that was why I stopped competing was I was just sick of, of feeling like I had to always be playing and stuff and, and not, not just that, but like always traveling to things. And, you know, if, if like it weren't like, you know, going to like a tournament every other weekend I might have just kept playing, right? Like if it wasn't if it wasn't like you know the, the the need to constantly be like traveling to all these events and 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 competing, people didn't care that much about watching the best players play. People cared about watching the best players play, but they cared more about the chance of playing against them or seeing their friends mm-hmm. play against them. Of mm-hmm. the the aspirational part of it, not like the like awe of it right because one of the one of the things that like differentiates magic from say you know league of legends or you know shooters or basketball or whatever right the average person watching the best person in the world play doesn't even know why they're that good right like you can watch like 
you know, like the best basketball players in the world play. And you don't even have to understand really the rules of basketball. And you're like, holy shit, that was incredible. Right. You know, like you just see people doing these crazy things. You know, you, you watch like a shooter and you see someone make like a crazy shot. You know, all of this is like very easily grokkable by the average person just watching. And especially someone who has like you know, a reasonable amount of knowledge about the game. You have to be incredibly tuned in to have any idea like what makes, you know, like a John Finkel so great at magic or, you know, Apollo so great at magic. And like, you know, just watching that person play against someone else who's also very good, you also like lose like, you know, the, because there's like the, the amount of like, you know, frankly luck that does go into, especially like people who are that close in skill level among the best players. It's like, okay, you just have these people like, you know, yes, they're obviously very, very, you know, uh, like important decisions that happen in all these games, but you, you basically have like, you know, okay, well, did you get a good match for a bad matchup against the other really good player? You know, did you get good or bad against the other really good player? And it's just, it's just kind of this back and forth of this. And obviously, yes, there, there are tiers of this and differences in, in play skill and how people, how people perform. Um, but a lot, again, a lot of that's invisible to the audience. And like, it's just not that interesting compared to, Hey, my buddies at the grand pre playing against, you know, Kai Buda or whatever. Right. Like that is so much more compelling to the average person than just watching the same people play the same decks over and over week in and week out. Mm -hmm. I know you used to play poker. So I think, I think it's best to kind of invoke the moneymaker effect, right? Because yeah. the idea of the world series of poker or poker having it's, it's heyday. And I would argue it still does, right. With some of the recent stuff that's come out in the news about poker and et cetera, <laughs> always, but controversies. Right. But, um, like it's the fact that you feel like you could be the next Chris Moneymaker, yeah. right? It's the fact that you can like sit next to Brian Kibler or sit next to Kai Buda and actually play them instead of it being kind of like a, a closed loop system, which is what the mm -hmm. MPL is, right? Which is like more like more like basketball, but then I think magic is also a double-edged sword, as you kind of alluded to, is that it's harder to just appreciate that, especially when the two people are very high level players. So it's like, you need commentary. You need like a deep understanding of the game and, and to frankly, begin with to actually even grok that. Yeah. And frankly, like most commentators can't even really explain <laughs> what makes, you know, and, and this isn't really like necessarily a dig at like, you know, any of the people who do commentary. Right. But like, yeah. you know, you have to be like among the absolute best to be able to, to like walk through these players thought processes, you know, right. like, it is a very, very hard game to do commentary for. And, you know, I, I feel like it, like the commentary is crucial, but it, it also like, even with that, it is, it is difficult to be able to present it in, you know, a way that really allows the audience to appreciate just how, you know, how good these players can be. And, you know, that's why I, I just feel like that, like, you know, the best versus the best, while it's obviously something that, that is, is great narratively, it being the only thing you're doing when you're doing essentially like the MPL as, as your primary product for broadcast and getting rid of stuff like Grand Prix, you know, or at least getting rid of the broadcasting of Grand Prix, that was so much more compelling to the average person, right? Like they want to see their friend making a deep run at the Grand Prix or at the Pro Tour or whatever, you know, or, or like be able to envision themselves in this situation playing against, you know, like a Luis Scott Vargas or whatever. You know, that is, I think, much more compelling to the audience than, you know, the 80th match between, like, you know, Luis Salvato and, like, Seth Manfield or whatever. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's just, like, it's just not that compelling over the long term. Yeah, yeah. 
So do you feel that competitive play or organized play in Magic is going the right step in the legitimate direction? I, I think that the move away from MPL and the move back toward doing, you know, qualifiers into Pro Tours is the right direction to go. I think that, that you know, they they had the system more or less right <laughs> before. And, you know, I think that there's obvious ways th things can be improved, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that, you know, we have we have seen that people don't want, you know, stuff like the MPL. And we saw the same thing in Hearthstone, right? It's, you know, it's not like it's specifically something that is, you know, a condition of, of like magic. It's more like, you know, like the, the idea of going to like a broadcast first product rather than a participation first product was something that both of those games did at basically the same time. My understanding is that there was like crossover between people who went between the two different companies. So there was like cross pollination of, of ideas which unsurprisingly led to both, uh, you know, both games doing very similar things with their organized play and making the same mistakes, frankly. It feels like things have kind of gone in from one extreme to the other. So my understanding of the new Pro Tour system is that there's not really going to be all that much coverage, or at, at least so far, I haven't seen like PTQs being broadcast, right? Or maybe regionals or higher level yeah. events will be. But like, how do you feel about that, though? I mean, I, I feel like... I feel like it's 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 weird because the it is expensive to do quality broadcast of live events, right? Like, and you know, it it doesn't necessarily make sense for these sort of third parties to do it. It only makes sense if it is viewed by you know like wizards or by you know like the whatever organizer for like these large scale things um, to do them, right? Like. Because, you know, especially at, like, large convention centers, like, the, the amount that it costs just for internet, you know, like, particularly internet that can actually do that level of, of, you know, bandwidth for streaming is, like, way more than, like, most people reasonably comprehend when they talk about, like, why don't they just have coverage, right? And, you know, but I do think that, that like, having stuff like your, you know your pro tour level events, your regional championship level events, having coverage for those, I think is a very valuable thing to making people feel like playing the game matters, right? Like, and, and maybe, you know, Wizards has, has made sort of the decision with the success of Commander, you know, without any sort of live events over, you know, the course of like quarantine and COVID and such, they're like, well, we're selling more product than ever. So we're not spending, you know, all this money on, you know, the marketing expense of the Pro Tour and of Grand Prix and coverage and things like that, you know, so why bother going back to it? it you know, could be the mentality that you have. But at the same time, I think that there, there is like some population of your, you know, your player base who's sort of like been waiting to get back to playing competitively and, and they're like kind of hungering for these sort of announcements. And, and you know, I, I feel like, the legitimacy, like I talked about before, with what the Pro Tour offers is making it feel like what you're doing matters and the time you're spending isn't, you know, just, just like wasted on this hobby. And particularly given just how expensive Magic is too, right? It's not just time, it's, it's money. And, you know, there being something which is like, this is the goal, right? And the goal doesn't have to be that, you know, I am competing in the World Championship. The goal can just be like, I'm getting a feature match on camera at a big tournament. And that makes me, you know, feel like all this time was worth it, Right. Like, that's the goal I will have is to just, like, you know, be recognized, be noticed, be seen in the community. And, you know, that's that's totally understandable. Um, you know, we, we basically live in, like, an attention economy. So getting any of that attention, um, you know, is something that, that people feel, like, legitimized by. 
Um, so I, I hope that they do have at least some degree of coverage for these events that isn't just, you know, like people like webcamming in from home and, you know, just MTG arena stuff, because I, I think that we've seen that, that isn't nearly as compelling as live stuff. For sure. Let's say that there was a counterfactual example where let's say that it was like 20 year old you, right? Cause at that time you were like aspiring to get on the highest ranks or, you know, you were, you were wanting to go as far as you could competitively in magic. If 20 year old Brian were like teleported into present day, the present world, let's just say that, right? Mm -hmm. Like how would someone who has, who's like ultra competitive or has those aspirations, like how should they look at magic? Is magic even worth quote unquote doing mm -hmm. uh, in your opinion? I don't know if, someone like that. Honestly, I, I don't, I don't know if the like competitive offerings that magic has now would be something that I would be willing to spend anything, anything close to like the time that I spent when, you know, I was that age, like certainly like right now, no, because there, there aren't like, you know, the, 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 the kind of, of tournaments, the level of competition that existed then. Um, I am hopeful that when they do like relaunch, you know, the pro tour, as they've said, like early next year, that we will see, you know, that like level of competition and, and that feeling of legitimacy to spending that time to be competitive in magic mattering again and feeling like it's worth it. I mean, we do have like the world championship coming up at magic 30, right? The funny thing is I know so little about that, right? Like it feels, it feels so strange that like, I don't even, I have no idea who's qualified for the world championship. It's in two weeks, right? And it's not to say that like, I'm someone who, who is like super dialed into the magic competitive scene. But it's strange to me that, like, I haven't even heard anything about it other than it's happening. I don't know what format it mm -hmm. is. I don't know who's playing. Like, it is, it is bizarre to me that I follow every Magic social media account and I haven't seen promotion of this. Right? Like, and, and, and some of this is the, the actual, like, OP systems. And some of it is just, like, those kind of choices. Right? Like, what are the, the priorities? Are you, are you spending your, your social media resources promoting all the new secret layers? You know, but not this. So, you know, like, like some of it is, is that like back when, you know, in 2000 or whatever, when I was 20, which is so strange, <laughs> but <laughs> back then, you know, like there were so many different like magic websites and, you know, like, like there was like the sideboard magazine, there was all this stuff. And obviously this is a pre-social media age. Um, so it's, it is like very different because, you know, you, you just have less sort of things immediately thrown in your attention. You, you, you do have to go seek the, seek these things out, but you know, it felt like there was, there was more ability to see stuff about this than there is now to a certain extent, or at least there are more places that, that seemed to care. You know, it's certainly pretty demoralizing as someone who, you know, wants to care about competitive magic that like all of the major, like retailers and websites that used to focus largely on competitive play in terms of articles and videos and things like that just don't anymore. You know, like Star City, Channel Fireball, like, you know, used to have like basically like an arms race for like, you know, the, the like, like top players for getting strategy articles and videos and things like that. And now like, you know, you just have more commander videos forever, right? Not that there's anything like, you know, wrong with that, but like, I think it's a combination of factors of like the specific decisions made with things like the MPL, obviously COVID was huge in terms of the impact that it had on magic competitive play, which historically has been focused in paper play and had, you know, had like 
kind of they kind of shifted some amount of, of focus to MTG Arena, particularly through MPL and like the Mythic Invitationals or whatever. Um, but you know they, they hadn't fully pivoted to to digital in any way, and then kind of had to immediately, and didn't really have like you know the 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 structure to to get that quite figured out immediately. Um, but that also obviously had the impact of well, no one's buying cards to play in tournaments, so you you don't have like the the value of writing a strategy article, you know, as a as a third party retailer like a Star City or whatever. Why pay for a strategy article when no one's going to buy a deck to play in the tournament, right? And yeah. That hasn't changed even since like stuff has opened up, you know, after sort of the, the at least major elements of like COVID quarantine have, have largely lifted, you know, but there just still aren't like big tournaments that people are like really bothering to, you know, put decks together and play in. Other than, you know, the like stuff on, on uh, Magic Arena or whatever. And that's like, well, you're not selling anyone cards as a third party retailer for that. So. Do you think Magic is too entrenched in the way that it's going for there to like have any major significant like 180 changes? Because you're kind of touching on like the fact that you know there were some missteps along the way. I think it's sort of like universally agreed upon, and you know, kind of understanding that Wizards and Magic is a kind of big machine is very hard to like make a course correction. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I'm wondering, like, is it just going to keep going down the path of? what it's doing now, which is like catering to more like non-competitive, a, a more non-competitive demographic, or do you well, think there's actually a way that we could fork it so that it could like all parties could uh, be satisfied? So I, I think it's actually correct for Magic to focus more on less competitive players because there's more of them, right? Like making stuff for people who are playing Commander, making stuff for just playing like kitchen table type Magic is frankly probably the, the the position that Magic should have taken more of for a longer time, right? Like competitive Magic kind of was the the shining star of like Magic broadly for a very long time, like at least in terms of the attention that it got, um, even when that wasn't necessarily justified by like who actually bought cards, you know? Like you, you, you sold far more cards to like people who were just putting together like their sliver deck than were playing in, a, in like, you know, a tournament or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that some of that was just kind of a, a natural correction that was ultimately going to happen, uh, but was obviously um, hurried along by the various missteps made by Magic Organized Play alongside, you know, everything shutting down for, with, with COVID. Um, I, I am hopeful that, you know, with the relaunch of the Pro Tour, um, you know, William Jensen being the person who's, who's like, you know, the director of those programs now is something that makes me a lot... Uh, feel a lot better about it because he's obviously someone who has a lot of experience on the player side uh, and a lot of insight into what people do care about as competitive players and not just sort of like someone who is coming from, you know, like a marketing perspective who's like, Hey, we want to, you know, rebrand this and make it something, you know, that, that is, I don't know, punchier or whatever with the mythic championship. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I honestly think that, that that renaming was one of the worst parts about the whole thing. <laughs> Because you just have so many, so many years of history of the Pro Tour. And then you're just like, we're just going to call this the Mythic Championship. It's like, is, the, is that because your deck has to be all Mythic Rares? I don't understand. <laughs> Mythic's a cool, cool word. Give me, give me my legitimacy. That's what, that's what, that's, and that, that's, that really is the biggest thing. Is it... I thought Ellie was objecting to uh, the naming <laughs> of the Mythic Championship, so. <laughs> They're barking like crazy. Give me one, Sarah. 
Nope, that's not how you sound. Come here. Wow, he just he just scampered away. Oh, I was hoping for Oko's appearance on camera. Oko, come here. <laughs> wow, he's just he's just walking away. It's very unlike okay. him to not want pets, to not want to Oh really? It must be yeah. my voice. It's like he is the, really uh... deterring him. I think what's really interesting is that you have said in the past that when you worked on a game like Versus System, it was almost like too the opposite of casual. Like mm -hmm. it was entirely skill based and uh, like the person who was better would win like all the time. And you actually said, I think that that's one of the reasons the game didn't work because it didn't mm -hmm. really have that mass appeal. It wasn't like as fun for like a more fun loving or, or larger crowd. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, in, in light of that observation, like, do you think magic has the right balance of casual slash fun versus something else today? Uh, yeah, it's just how you feel about that balance. I, I do think that, that you know, the, the sort of product offerings and direction that, that, that Magic is going makes a lot more sense um, with that, you know, greater focus on the ways that people actually do enjoy playing the game, like Commander, you know, rather than just being sort of as focused as they historically have been on, on competitive play. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that you see often with, like, game companies that, like, decide they want to make a card game, right, is you see them hire people who were previously competitive players in other card games, and then they end up with a game that those players want to play. And it's not necessarily a game that anyone else wants to play, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that that was one of the things that happened with Versus System. You, you had you know, Upper Deck hiring a bunch of, like, former pro Magic players, and then you end up making a game that those players want to play. And often that no one else wants to play. And you've seen this in a lot of card games, right? You know, especially early on when, when, when companies are trying to make games that are like competitors to Magic, they're like, well, we're going to make a game that, that you can't get mana screwed, that doesn't have as much luck, doesn't have as much randomness. It's like, well, that just makes the game less fun, right? Like, a lot of people complain about elements of randomness in games, but the reality is that those elements of randomness are often what make the games both just, like, generally fun because there's more elements of surprise. It's not just, like... I figured out the math and thus I win. But also like it, it is a reason for players who might not necessarily be the best players to keep playing because sometimes they win, right? Like if, if magic didn't have a lot of the elements of randomness that it does have, or if Hearthstone didn't have a lot of the elements of randomness that it does have, I don't think either of them would be nearly as successful. A lot of people like look at and frame, you know, oh, we want to make, we want to fix this element of this game, like fix the randomness in Magic or fix the randomness in Hearthstone. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> you think you do, but you don't, because you're just going to end up with, you know, a game that literally like the five best players of that game love playing and no one else likes to play because they always lose to them. <laughs> and, you know, it's not even necessarily just that sort of like, you know, how likely you are to win, depending on, you know, like how good of a player you are. It's just like the gameplay ends up being super similar and repetitive if you just don't have elements of randomness in a lot of cases. I think that's just something that people view as a negative when it's actually like exactly the opposite. It's a huge reason for the success of a lot of these games. How did you come to that realization? Oh, uh, no problem. How did you come <laughs> to this uh, realization? Was it through your career in game design? Was it just through like living life? Was it through Hearthstone? Like, how did you come up with that sort of I insight? Mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's like a unique observation, you know, when it, when it comes to, to, to games and randomness, you know, I think that 
like some of it is is you know you just, you just kind of play these games that like you know have more elements of like control for the player like versus system for instance versus system you know that was the first game that i ever worked on and i worked on it after winning their first like pro circuit tournament uh, their first pro tour eff effectively i went to go work at upper deck on the game and like versus system was super hard right like it was a superhero card game but like the the way the game works is like you played out your heroes and like you, you had like resources each turn and like they didn't want you to be able to get mana screwed so you could play any card as a resource but you wanted to have better cards to play as a resource so you wouldn't just feel bad always playing things down like face down so you could have plot twists and you played your plot twists fit plus face down and you could flip them face up and use them after you use them as a resource so you just end up with these situations where you have like six face down cards any of which could be any number of things and then, like, you know, this positioning of your of your hero cards, your, your, your creature cards, whatever, that is all super important because the, the way that you attack and position them based on, like, whether they can reinforce and prevent, basically, trample damage. And it's just, like, mind-crushing, right? The, the number of permutations of what can possibly happen in any given, like, combat based on how you position things and what the possible face-down things are. And it's like, okay, you, you got rid of some of the element of randomness by, like, not being able to be mana-screwed, but now you've just, like made it so that there's just way too many things to, like, compute for the average person. And, you know, you, you, you make it such that, like, the like the game is not about, like, superheroes battling, right? It's about, like, just a bunch of math and probabilities. <laughs> and it's it, like, that's it's, just it's not math disguised in a superhero-themed game, right? It, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just not going to be the sort of thing that appeals to, like, the average comic book fan, right? You want to have, like, your heroes battling, rah, like, you know... Who wins in a fight? Thing versus the Hulk or whatever, right? And, mm. and, like, it wasn't that. It was like, you know, oh, I positioned my guy here when he should have been here, and thus I took one more point of damage and I died. And it just, it just wasn't really something that, like, ever took off with a more casual audience. And it was launched with a Pro Tour, you know, thus me winning the first Pro Tour or whatever. It was launched with a Pro Tour to clearly attend, you know, intend to appeal to, like, this very competitive audience without sort of the realization that that audience is already a, a, like a small subsection of the audience of like the game you're trying to pull over, right? If you're trying to attract competitive magic players, you know, you're, you're already going to get like a smaller slice of a smaller pie. And, and then like, you know, you, you kind of have to keep them. And it's like, well, what are you going to keep them with? Like just offering them even more prizes or whatever. Like if you just get people who are mercenaries to your game because you have a lot of prizes, that's all they're going to be. So what attracted you to versus? Was it the prize pool, or is it just yeah, because they, like they, it they were exactly the demographic? First prize for their tournament, and no one was good at the game, so I just won. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, another counterfactual: like, is is that the kind of game that you would even consider touching today, or it's just so? I mean, like, let's like, let's say adjusted for inflation, the prize pool was like whatever 2022 equivalent was. Like, would you would you go back there? I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd give it a shot, you know, like I, I didn't, I did like playing the game at first, right? Like, cause it was, it was new and it was like a new challenge to figure out, right? There's, there's obviously yeah. just that appeal of like any new game that comes out. It's like, Hey, I want to try and figure this out. Right. Like that, there's something that's inherently fun to that initial challenge. It's kind of like what I was talking about before, like the challenge of like figuring out deck building is the thing that keeps me coming back to like magic or hearthstone or whatever. Right. And you know, like figuring out like the systems of a new game and how to actually be good at the game and, and you know, how to, how to like, you know, be able to win when it is clear that my goal is to be competitive because there's this big prize tournament. Right. 
so, you know, there is definitely that appeal. But for instance, like, like I played like Artifact when that came out, right? And despite the fact that there was like this huge prize pool for Artifact, I was just like, I don't want to play this. This is just like mind-numbingly like, you know, overwhelming in terms of just there being too many things going on all the time. And it just wasn't fun to me. So, you know, like even, even despite the fact that they announced they were going to have like a million dollar first prize tournament, I was just like, I'm not going to play this. And then the game died before they ever had that tournament because it was way too hard. Yeah. When you were on the top, in the top ranks of the pro tour and you, you know, you, there's basically a progression system that allowed you to, to reach the highest levels and then to enter the hall of fame. Uh, cause I understand you took a break from magic and you came back to, to get into the hall of fame. Does such a thing exist now in, in magic or games that you're, you're aware of? Like, is, is there something, cause I feel like magic was sort of, sort of hit this sweet spot where it actually, the legacy of your career actually mattered. Is there, it, it, are there any games today that kind of still hit that mark? Or is it only about prize pools and like other things now? I mean, I think that there are games that have like the, the level of like legitimacy just in terms of achievements that it feels like, wow, you know, like that's really impressive. Like for instance, like League of Legends. I'm not good at League of Legends. You know, I, I, I like, you know, just don't think that I'll ever be that good at League of Legends. My hands just don't move fast enough or whatever. <laughs> um, but like, you know, players who have their sort of careers and, and like championships and, and like MVP type awards and things like that. You know, like, I don't even know what the prize pools are for, like, the League of Legends World Championship. It's not about that, right? Mm. It's about, like, you know, the, the legitimacy of winning, right? And that's, that's you know, like, that, that I think in a lot of ways is much more motivating than, like, the money to a lot of people. Like, I remember when I, when I was competing in Magic and there was, like, the Invitational, right? When you, you, had, you had the chance to win and be featured on a card. And I would have much rather won that than a Pro Tour. Because it was, like, this way of just being cemented in the history of the game in a way that, like, you know, yes, obviously it's, it's, it's great to win a Pro Tour and win, like, $40,000, which was the prize pool, like, you know, back, back then. But, like, you know, to, to be, like, immortalized in the game's history kind of thing was just way cooler to me. Even before I won a Pro Tour and even when I was a pro college kid, right, I was just like, yeah, this is way cooler. So, you know, I, I don't think it's just all about prize pool. I think it's, I think it's about, you know, like I was saying before, feeling like it matters, right? Feeling like, you know, the, the amount of time and energy that you spend at this game is something that, like, you can look back in the future and be like, you know, I'm proud of that. I'm happy I did that. And, you know, like, and, and you can spend the money, right? The money's going to go away, <laughs> you know, especially when you're a broke college student and you want a bunch of money for the first time and then you just buy everyone drinks, uh, but, so funny story. Uh, my, my first big like uh, tournament success on the Pro Tour. I got third place at Pro Tour Chicago in 2000. Uh, I was a college student at the time, and I had like quit my like work study in the theater. I like built sets in the theater as part of my work study, and I was like, this is taking up too much of my time. You know, I I need to like spend more time like preparing for these tournaments that I'm playing in. And I got third place in the Pro Tour, and I won $15,000. And I deposited the check, and my bank account was $15,025. <laughs> and I kept that, like, uh, ATM receipt 
for so long. Yeah. It was like worn out, like to pieces in my wallet. I kept it forever, just kind of as this, you know, this acknowledgement of, you know, where I had come from and where this had sort of started. And also just what a crazy person I was for like flying to this tournament in Chicago as a broke college student with $15 in my bank account and no other possible recourse if I did not do it. So, you know, in sports, they have, they, 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 they say that someone is irrationally confident if they're like the 12th man on an NBA team and they come up, they, they get into the game and they're still shooting every shot as if they're Michael Jordan. Like, where do you get, <laughs> where do you think you got your irrational confidence from? I don't know. I like I I just think I don't even know that it was necessarily like like that degree of confidence. I think it was just like, well, this is what I want to do and I want to spend my time doing this. And it wasn't even necessarily that it was like I was so sure that it was going to go well. It was just that like I needed it to. Right? I really really wanted it to. And that that term was particularly weird because I, I mean, I like I had, there were so many moments in that tournament where I was just like, I am going to draw this card. And I just did, right? Like this almost just like, you know, like Yugi, heart of the card. The universal line, card right? the top of my deck yeah. kind, of, kind of nonsense. Yeah. Almost what it felt like, right? And, you know, like in order to, in order to like do well, in order to win any tournament that involves, you know, drawing cards from a deck, you've got to get lucky to some extent, right? But it felt like almost supernatural at some points during that tournament. You know, some, some serious main character syndrome going on there. Looking back, how do you feel about your, your magic career? Like, are you 100% happy with your legacy or do you have any regrets? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with it. You know, I like obviously, like, would I love to have won more? Sure. But I don't feel like I, you know, I needed to. I don't feel like I, I had anything to prove, which wasn't true before I came back and started playing again, right? Like when they announced the Hall of Fame, you know, at that time, I just had that one top eight, right? I, I had that one top eight from Chicago. I'd, I'd, won, um, I'd won two Grand Prix at that time. Um, but like I only had the one top eight and, you know, I, I knew that like I wouldn't legitimately be voted into the Hall of Fame um, with that level of results. And I kind of had made the decision. I was like, you know, this is something that was very important to me through so much of my life. I want to be in the hall of fame. I am going to prove that I deserve to be in the hall of fame and started playing again. And, you know, I, I think it took me something like seven PTQs or something like that. Might've been more than that. I don't, I don't even remember exactly, but it was, it was, it was like a, a, a good chunk of like PTQs that I played in before I won one. Um, but then I won the, I won a PTQ for, uh, uh, for Honolulu. And then I made top eight in Honolulu and one Austin, like back to back. So I was like, okay, well, I, I think I may have proved my point. Um, and then, you know, obviously like then like went on to uh, win Honolulu uh, again in 2012. Um, mm. Not, I guess not again, because I didn't win the previous Honolulu, but, but yeah, I mean, there were definitely periods when I was competing that I wasn't like, you know, my goal was, was not necessarily like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be the best for a lot of like the, my early you know, time playing the pro tour. I was a college student. I was enjoying traveling around and playing in tournaments and, you know, having a good time. Right. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like my priority to like be the absolute best that I could be and to try and like necessarily do as well as I could in all of these tournaments. But once I decided like, Hey, I want to prove that I'm as good as I think I am. 
right? And and I want other people to believe that too. Then I just kind of started winning stuff again. How does your mind work? Like when you came back to try I wish to I knew. No. <laughs> <laughs> like when you came back and tried to uh, cement your place in the Hall of Fame, was there a lot of pressure that you put on yourself? Like in terms of or was it was it just became like a confidence thing where you kind of you just knew you could do it and even playing like seven PTQs or whatever you had to do to grind through it, you knew you could. Yeah, I mean I think I just knew that I could. You know, like I, I think that like I just felt like I knew that that when I had competed before and I hadn't done as well as I knew that I could have, it was because of just the way that I was focusing on on other things and and not necessarily, you know, focusing on the game as well. Uh, one of the one of the things that was always really rough for me, like earlier in my competitive career, was I was very bad at staying focused, like toward the like end of a tournament. Like as soon as I started doing like. As soon as I like, took a loss, you know, like late in a tournament that might like knock me out of like top eight contention, I would just collapse, right? Like I, I had like so few results that weren't like great or awful. And it was because, like, you just weren't interested if you're out of yeah, like the it, top. It was because I just like, eight. I just like let myself lose focus when I was no longer like competing to win anymore. Right. It was, it was difficult for me to like care that much about getting like top 32 or whatever. You know, it just, it just wasn't something that, like, I I cared enough about to, like, have as much focus. Because I, I just really wanted to win. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would easily let myself get distracted by, like, oh, if I win this one, then, uh, you know, I just need to win one more. And I wasn't just focusing on the game. I was focusing on, like, what the implications of the game were for the rest of the tournament kind of thing. And that would, mm-hmm. that would distract me, lead me to, like, you know, often make some sort of mistake. And then leave me in a position where like, okay, well now I can't make top eight. So I don't, I don't really care that much anymore. So is that something that you corrected in yourself? Like the, I, when you came back to magic, then yeah, you're like I, I playing every round as if it, you know, when I, when okay. I, I stopped playing, I stopped competing for, you know, like five or six years, you know, I just had, I just had better, just like life perspective, you know, it's going from being like, you know, a college kid to being someone who had like, you know, spent a bunch of time, you know, I wouldn't say out in the real world because I just worked in game design, which is not entirely the real world. Um, but, you know, ha- had like a different, just a different perspective on the game. And, you know, I was, I, I like, while I did feel like I had something to prove, it was more like I had something to prove to myself than anyone else. And I think that that, like, I didn't feel like, you know, I needed to, I wasn't, I, I just wasn't as like, as like caught up in my results. I was more just like playing the game, which is particularly weird because the, the whole point you know, to some extent of me competing again was that I wanted to prove to everyone else that I should be in the Hall of Fame. But that wasn't kind of how my mindset was in the tournaments. It was like I was able to focus better because, you know, it was I think part of it was being like away from the scene for a while gave me perspective that like this isn't just the only thing that matters in my life. Right. (laughs) Which it kind of was when I was when I was competing initially, when I was just out of college, like competing in magic was kind of the only thing that I knew, the only thing that I'd done. So I didn't have the level of just like life perspective to keep the sort of implications of, you know, whatever game or round or tournament, you know, in mind and be able to, to keep myself steady through it. What did you say in your Hall of Fame speech? Because I tried my best. I could I could not find. Uh, oh, they didn't have a speech in yeah, 2010. They, they, I don't remember. I don't know when they started doing Hall of Fame speeches, but it wasn't a thing when I was inducted. 
Okay, because I, I do remember reading about the coverage and like you, you, you thanked your, your family, particularly your mom for like getting you to where you were and all that stuff. I, I wasn't like, sure if there was a speech. So. Yeah, they, they did like a brief interview, like after the ceremony, I think, but they didn't do like a speech or anything. That's unfortunate. You need to, for someone like who's so well-spoken, they need to have you like <laughs> do a speech, like is, is I don't know. Um, okay. Um, one last question for you. This is going to be like super random, but I heard okay. this from Reed Duke. So I thought I would just shoot my shot. Sure. Like what's the story with the college admission letter? What oh, the, you mean the, 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 the Harvard one? I, I don't know. Like Reed okay. just said, ask Brian about the college. Okay, admission sure, letter. sure, sure. So when I was a, a senior in high school, um, I went to I went to Phillips Academy in Andover. It's like a very prestigious like prep school, whatever. Um, I was a scholarship kid, and uh, you know, but like there's a lot of people there who apply to like all the Ivy Leagues, like Harvard, Yale, etc. Um, so my senior year, I had applied to you know a, a number of schools, including Harvard, and I got my uh, my letter, you know, from back from Harvard, which was a rejection letter, but it was dated April first, and I wrote back to Harvard. I, I sent like a reply to the admissions office that was like, you know, I, I appreciate, I'm, I don't actually have that letter. I don't remember the exact words. But it was basically something that just was, you know, I, I appreciate your, your, you know, your joke in the spirit of April Fool's Day, but you can feel free to send me my actual letter of acceptance at your earliest convenience. And <laughs> this like, because there were like so many people at my, they're very excited about it. Yeah. Uh, because there were so many people like at my school that like, you know, apply to Harvard, this kind of like became like a, like a, a folk, you know, kind of like legend among my class, or whatever. Uh, but they were back to me and were like, oh, you know, uh, like I, I, I actually still have this letter somewhere um, from them. That was like, you know, oh, like, like the, you know, April 1st has no like folk significance in this office. Like, you know, good luck in your future endeavors, but you know, this has to be, con you know, considered like taken seriously or whatever. And I wrote back to them again. And, like, highlighted the fact that, like, there was a typo in April 1st. It was, like, 1-S-T-T. -T. And I was like, I can, I can clearly see that this is just, you know, an, an attempt to make sure that any applicant who you admit to your, your university has the utmost attention to detail. And they, they wrote me back again. <laughs> I was like, you know, it was just like a handwritten letter that was like, you know, I'm a generalist. Typos are part of my style or whatever. Um, but this came up recently because a, a reporter like tweeted about this story and the reporter was the sister of one of the guys who lived in my dorm at Andover <laughs> and she'd heard the story from him. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. She like, you know, there's, there's some ongoing thing about college admissions. And she was like, I heard the story about this. And I'm like, yes, that story you heard was about me. So how did you decide? So you did get accepted into Harvard. I did not. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I they, understand. They, you did. You, you ended up going to college in Atlanta. But... My my, like you know, uh, back and forth, April Fools' related messages did not change their mind. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Um, I don't know. So yeah, I think Brian it worked out pretty well for me. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I think they did. Brian, thank you so much. You were absolutely lovely. Thank you for taking the time. I'm still a little bit nervous, um, but <laughs> thank you for uh, keeping me uh, entertained and, uh, and, and uh, honest. Absolutely. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.